0: So, 1 Peter 1. And so let's talk about the introduction to 1 Peter a little bit. About the epistle. The author of this epistle was Simon Peter. We'll talk a little bit more about him, but remember this is Cephas, this is Peter, this is Simon Bar-Jonah, this is the one who was with Jesus from very early on in his ministry, um, from the time of his baptism, and and, um, this is the one who walked on water, and this is the one who denied him three times, and this is the one who was restored, and this is this is that Peter. Um, the date, he likely wrote this around 65 A.D., which, which would have been after the prison epistles of Paul, um, likely would have, and, and remember, the, the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D., and so we're only five years out from that. A lot of that anti-Roman sentiment, the zealots, the zealots are really starting to, to kick up fervor at this point. Um, Nero is likely still at this point the um, emperor, and uh, at the point of writing he is in sixty five but i 'm saying at the point of writing, uh, we would assume then that Nero is the emperor, of course, Nero would get to the point where he would initiate tremendous persecution of the christians it didn 't start that way in his in his rule. he was tolerant at first, but eventually would would um, initiate The first real tremendous persecution of of uh, the Jewish or of the Christians around the whole empire of Rome. There would have been pockets, obviously. We're reading about that in Galatians, right? Uh, We we saw that all the way back to the first missionary journeys. Uh, We saw that in um, Corinthians. We saw that in Thessalonians. There has been persecution, but not government-sanctioned persecution, which is what will happen under Nero. So around the time of Nero is when Peter uh, Peter was writing. Uh, We we seem to see a great deal of familiarity that Peter has with Paul's writings, which is why we believe it would have been after Paul's writings, probably about two years prior to Peter's death that um, he wrote this epistle of 1 Peter. The audience, the elect strangers. And we'll see as we get a little bit more into this word, the word elect as well as the word strangers. The strangers there is literally the word sojourner. And it's speaking of Jews who are not living in Judea, speaking of Jews who have gone out into other parts of the Roman Empire. And he'll specify exactly where in just a little bit. And then they are elect Jews. So he's not just writing to Jews. He's writing to saved Jews, Jews that have accepted Jesus Christ as their savior, Jews that are are living a testimony of Christ in their areas and that is his audience the purpose is that he's writing that that these jewish believers would give no reproach to christ in the midst of their deep persecution peter was concerned that in the midst of their persecution they they though they were enduring were perhaps not being uh, or or were tempted not to be as good of an example uh, as they could be. Um, and we are perhaps familiar with this even from our own age, the temptations in the midst of reproach and persecution um, to handle it wrong. You know, when you see a person who um, um, is being persecuted for their faith and they they handle it very poorly, you know, they go to the media, they go to the law, they go to the courts, they go to everything, and and they handle it in such a way that you look and say, wow, that's not really... I don't think that's really what the scriptures are talking about when they say bear your reproach. You know? uh, they're making a big, messy ordeal out of this and they are going to assert their rights and they're going to... I'm not saying that it's never right, particularly in our country where we have rights guaranteed to us by the Constitution, but perhaps you're familiar or, or as I say, that something triggers in your mind where, yeah, you know, someone that took things way too far and it really became a reproach to Christ because of the way they handled their persecution. And um, that's kind of what Peter is warning against here. And he's likely writing from Babylon. Uh, Can you think of a reason? Can you give me a reason as you think about things why perhaps Peter would have been in Babylon? As you think about Peter, as you think about his ministry, as you think about who he was and, and such... Why might have Peter been in Babylon? Sarah? When persecution in Jerusalem happened, most of the Jews, every Jewish Christian, had to leave. Uh-huh. So either he had to flee, or he's imprisoned, or he is visiting believers in other places. So had to flee, maybe imprisoned, maybe be, uh visiting believers in other places, the idea that The believers had to flee Judea during the persecution. Maybe many of them ended up there. But uh, if we think about the Old Testament and think about the book of Daniel and the book of Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra, a fairly small number of Jews proportionally came back to Israel, didn't they? And where were they coming from? They were coming from the Babylon area. That's where they were taken into captivity. And remember, in Esther's day, Israel had been established again for some time. And yet there were still a huge number of Jews in Babylon. There were a huge number of Jews that never again left that area. And so it would make sense that Peter, being an apostle to the Jews and seeking to reach Jewish believers, would venture out there. And he would probably have a huge audience of Jews to minister unto there in, in Babylon. So we talk about the man Peter. And this is First Peter 1, 1 and 2. Let's read it together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. This is verse one and two, and they are inextricable. They they are one thought. We really can't separate them from each other. So let's talk about Peter. Here he uses the word Petros, Peter. It's a proper name. It's a noun, a proper name. It's him, Peter. Petra would actually be a rock. It's it's a it's a feminine verb or a fem, feminine noun in in the Greek, whereas Petros has the masculine ending, which makes sense because he's a man and it's a uh, proper naun, noun, a uh, proper name. So his name is Simon, uh, and we've, we discussed this already. He's also called in Aramaic Cephas, and in the Greek, Peter, both of which mean rock or stone, and I explained why that is already. C- Peter wanted to retain the meaning of his name more than he wanted to retain the sound of his name. So we, we do see Paul call Peter Cephas. And in the same way that there was Paul and Saul, we see Cephas and Peter. Now, Paul, Saul would have been Saul of Tarsus' Hebrew name. Paul would have been his Greek name. When he came to Judea, he would probably have been called Saul. When he went to the Gentile world, he would have been called Paul. Peter would have regularly, probably among the Hebrews, been called Cephas as they were speaking in Aramaic, or as they were just using their, their Hebrew names. But then in the broader context, when he's writing in Greek and these sorts of things, he doesn't call himself Cephas in the Greek because he doesn't Cephas doesn't have the meaning. The meaning he's looking for is rock because that's what Jesus called him and that's what's extending to him. So he calls himself Petros, his Greek name, To get, even though he's writing to a Jewish audience, to get out the reality of the meaning of his name. The meaning was very important, particularly to Peter, because of Jesus' words to him. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. So he's recognized as an apostle to the Jews in the same way that Paul was considered an apostle to the Gentiles. We preached through this in Galatians not too long ago, right? That Paul had mentioned that as he stood before the Jerusalem council, the council recognized that in the same way Peter had been sent to the circumcision. He had been sent to the uncircumcision. In the same way that Peter, that, that um, Paul was the, the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter was seen as the apostle sent specifically to the Jews. And so as we see this writing to the strangers that are scattered abroad, we understand that that... If, if for no other reason than than this, of course, the, the idea of, of the scattered, uh, the strangers being f- uh, sojourners, pilgrims. And so there's that idea, but then there's also this reality that he is the apostle to the Jews and it makes perfect sense that he's writing to a Jewish audience. He's one of Jesus's 12 apostles commissioned to the Jewish people. And he had been with Jesus since the very earliest days of his baptism. In John chapter one, verses thirty-five through forty-two, you see the introduction. Do you remember who it is that introduced, as it were, Peter to Jesus? Simon was his name at that point. Simon Bar Jonah. Sarah. Andrew. That's right. Andrew initially. Sees Jesus, and Andrew goes and gets his brother Simon and says, I found the Messiah. And then they begin following. And so Andrew is actually the one that, that goes to his brother Simon and says, I found him. Perhaps Simon was there um, fishing because he was a fisherman. Andrew was too. But um, they had lived in the area of, of Capernaum. Uh, Peter, Simon, Cephas, was a married man. He, he was married and he had a family. And so, whereas you think of Paul, who was unmarried and specifically um, mentions that in 1 Corinthians and and wishes that all men could be as he was, um, we see from very early on in in Peter's ministry that he was, in fact, a married man. And this is an interesting dynamic. Now, we know that Jesus spent much time in Galilee throughout his ministry, but Peter followed Jesus wherever he went. And uh, we, as we consider that the Jewish tradition—I forget the name of his wife. Um, There's a couple of different names through. It wouldn't be Jewish tradition; it would be a Christian tradition. But there's tradition as to her name. But tradition dictates that she was martyred, um, as well as Peter. Uh, Yet we, we do know, of course, early on in Jesus's ministry, he healed Peter's wife's mother. Remember, and healed her of a fever and such. So we know that he was married. He was a fisherman, uh, lived in Capernaum with his wife and family and presumably his mother-in-law as well as they were in Capernaum when she was healed. He was given a very special ministry by Christ and perhaps seen to be a representative of God uh, relating to the affirmation of the initiation of the Holy Spirit's ministry upon people groups. say, Pastor, what in the world does that mean? Well, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus calls Peter the rock upon which he will build the church, and he says that he has given Peter the keys to the kingdom. And there's a great deal of controversy and questions as to what it means that Peter was given the keys to the kingdom and what it means that, that, that you know, thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. The upon this rock will I build my church, some of the scenarios or some of the theories is that it's not Peter that's the rock, it's that Jesus is the Christ is the rock upon which the church will be built. But if you think about what the scriptures say, particularly the book of Ephesians, which tells us that that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, it's perhaps not all that far-fetched to think of Peter as the rock upon which the church will will be built. And this does not demand that he becomes the first pope, which is the problem and why... Orthodox Christianity has sought to remove itself from the idea of Peter being the rock because that has led itself to the Catholic false doctrine that Peter was the first Pope. There's no evidence that Peter was the first Pope or that he ever held a position like that in Rome. However, the idea that Peter was foundational to the church is almost a given in Scripture. So this idea of the keys to the kingdom, what we find is that Peter was an operative force in the Holy Spirit falling upon each of the three particular people groups that the Bible speaks of. In Acts chapter 2, Peter was there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon the Jewish people. When they, when, when the, 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 uh, they began speaking in tongues and, and Peter preached that message on the day of Pentecost speaking uh, about the reality of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the Holy Spirit and on that day, Peter was there. And then a man named Philip goes up to the Samaritans and Philip tells, he, he sends back down to Judea and he says, look, the Samaritans believe. And he was, he was excited. And so what did the church do? They sent Peter up there and Peter gets up there in Acts chapter eight and sees that they believe and he lays his hands upon them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Why would it be that the Samaritans, having believed, did not receive the Holy Spirit until Peter is present? And then, we talked not too long ago about this in um, one of our other services. You have Cornelius. And Cornelius has the great vision of uh, a man saying, go and find Peter. And Peter will will tell you what to do. And so he sends to Peter and Peter has the vision of the the sheep and the the, uh, unclean animals and God tells him to eat the unclean animals. And he says, no, Lord. And he says, that which I have cleansed, don't call unclean. And then Peter realizes that it's not just the Jews and the Samaritans, but that God has brought salvation to the Gentiles as well. And he tells Cornelius as much and while he is there declaring the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and upon the Gentile world. And so Peter is present when all three people groups, the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles, received the Holy Spirit of God. Now after this, from this point on, with very few exceptions in the book of Acts, there, it, is, it is taken for granted that the Holy Spirit came and dwelled people at the moment of salvation. But in these three instances, the Holy Spirit fell upon these groups of believers already and in doing so we recognize that what god was doing is he was using peter as the as his tool to validate the working of the spirit so that some random guy from way off couldn't just come and say hey spirit's here too and now you've got this false spirit that is working among and and er, er, the church is confused is it real is it not Well, if God has chosen one man to validate the working of the Spirit of God in all three people groups and he's God's chosen man, then the church is protected from false testimony. So we see it in Acts 2, we see it in Acts 8, we see it in Acts 10. And that's likely what the idea of the keys to the kingdom means. There's other theories as well. But we would... um, I'm comfortable with that. And... That is a possible um, ministry of Peter as well. Are there questions on that? Bell. validate the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Would the church have known that? Yes, the church would have known that. Um, number one, the, 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 um, it started with 12 and then 120 and then it spread. And so the, the reality is those 12, those 11, after Judas Iscariot was killed and then um, Matthias is brought in and that would be the 12th and he was among them as well. So those 12 apostles would have all heard Jesus say, to you is given the keys of the kingdom. And then, of course, the apostles were the ones that were teaching. And so they all would have made this very clear, that unto Peter is given the keys to the kingdom. I think I just lost my... There we are. I keep feel like I keep fading in and out there. But um, that he's been given the keys to the kingdom. And so it would have been known. And um, would it have been known in the Samaritan and Gentile world? Possibly not, but it wouldn't have mattered. Because it was at that moment of Holy Spirit initiation that it would have mattered to them. And at that point, they, they could have heard because of the teaching of the apostles. So yeah, they would have known. Thus, it would have comforted the whole church. Other questions? Okay. Um, church tradition on Peter. We're going to stop after this, which is perfect, so I can organize a little bit more for next week. Um, Peter was, the, uh, according to church tradition, according to Jerome... Uh, and some other validations as well. He was a bishop in Antioch, which is an interesting thing because if you remember in Galatians chapter 2.11 when Paul has to stand up and rebuke Peter for separating himself from the Jews, fortunately we've just been talking about that, that's in Antioch. That is when Peter came to Antioch. But church tradition says that he had been a a, um, bishop in Antioch for some time. He spent some time in Babylon reaching the large group of Jews that were there. And Again, I hearken you back to Daniel and Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. And realizing that many, many Jews never left left that area of Babylon, and then church tradition states that he went out to Ro- he went to Rome to finish his ministry. Um, some do. Uh, Jerome does. Jer- I believe it's Jerome states that he was there for some time, and uh, there's some discrepancy there. Uh, Jerome had to have been off on some of these things, and at that point, um, maybe some bias or church tradition fell in there. But um, he, he did die in Rome, and he was cruci- crucified. He was crucified upside down, in fact. And um, that was by Nero. We see Jesus announce the particular death of Peter in John 21. This is the final chapter of John. And uh, the scriptures say this, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, this is Jesus speaking, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither, th- whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old... Thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldst not. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. That's Peter. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. So literally Jesus looked at Peter and said, When you are old, you're going to be crucified. Your hands are going to be spread. Someone else is going to gird you. Someone else is going to, going to you know, place you on that cross and you'll be carried where you wouldst not. And then he says, by the way, Peter, now that I've told you, you're going to die a martyr's death, follow me. And Peter does, which is a neat thing. And um, really a kind of a neat, kind of a neat thing when you think about it. And uh, that's when, um, yeah, well, other interesting things transpire in that chapter of John as well. But that's Jesus telling Peter the manner of death, the way in which he will die. And he does die in that way. Yeah, church tradition states that he was going to be crucified. He requested to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. And so he requested to be crucified upside down so that he wasn't completely, so that he didn't completely die in the same manner as his Lord. He didn't feel worthy of that. And we're going to stop there for tonight and we'll pick up Uh, next week, speaking of, of what it mean, what it means that he's an apostle. And then we're actually going to dig into the text a little bit.